Amen. I invite you to look at Romans chapter 3 with me, the last two verses. While you're turning there, let me just um, make a, a comment, maybe even uh, offer this as a kind of a word of explanation um, and a little bit of a window into how I see my task and my job. I, w- I want you to understand that preaching isn't just me showing up on Sunday morning and unloading a bunch of information. That's not what preaching is. Preaching is a much, much more um, broadly considered thing than that. And I learned from several of my dead friends that one of the things you're supposed to do in preaching is try to understand, try to anticipate, and then respond to the questions that the Word of God, when it is preached, will raise in people's minds. And I have to believe that from a couple of weeks ago, there's somebody in here who, when you read Romans chapter 3 and verses 9 and following, and particularly when you come to that verse in Romans 3 verse 10, which says, there is no one who is good, no, not one. There's nobody who is good, nobody who does good. Somebody in here has to be thinking, oh, come on, give me a break. Well, I know that that question naturally arises. It it has to arise uh, in our minds when we hear these categorical, all-inclusive statements like the statement made here in Romans chapter 3. And that's what I want to try to respond to a bit as we continue to look at this text. I want to read verses 19 and 20, but want to encourage you to keep in mind the verses that precede these two verses, and particularly that 11th verse, uh, the 12th verse. There is no one who does good, no, not one. So let's read verses 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let's pray together. Uh, Lord, again, we, um, we come to you asking for your help, asking for your spirit, and we come uh, especially because we, we find some of these things so difficult to understand. We're, we're willing, Father. We, we want to hear from you, and yet we confess that we find some of the things which you say to us very, very hard to understand and embrace. So we need your spirit. We need you to make our hearts pliable. We need you to open our eyes and and our minds. And really, we need you by the power of your your spirit to persuade us that these things really are true. So come, come and help us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are um, three words that are probably the most difficult words in the English language, so simple, uh, but yet so hard. Three words, three words in English, and so three words in the English language that are probably the hardest words uh, for anybody to say, and they're simply the words, I was wrong. 
I was wrong. And then the words that follow those three words, uh, I am, thank you very much, sorry, I am sorry, I was wrong, I am sorry. Six really difficult, difficult words. Two weeks ago, I preached, uh, shared this on Friday morning at the Women's Refuge, preached what may have been the most difficult sermon I've ever preached in my life. And I'll tell you, I was depressed for days. And I'm not kidding. That probably says more about uh, me um, and my issues than anything else. But to stand in front of a group of people and to preach from Romans chapter 3, these particular verses, to read them and then, and then to wrestle with them with you is an extraordinarily difficult thing to do. I mean, think about it. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one who understands. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. Those are tough, tough words to hear. And as I suggested to you, I know it has to raise questions in people's minds. Uh, How do we understand this? How do we think about this? What, What is the Bible saying to us here? And, and I want to suggest to you again something that, that I've said several times. I said it to the newcomers class this morning, and I want to say it again, and I want to remind us of it because I think it's really critical if we're going to understand Christianity at all, if we're going to come to the Bible with a, a proper attitude and a, a proper heart, a proper disposition. Um, I want to say again, as we come to the Bible, we have to remember a couple of things. We are both finite and flawed. We we don't know everything that there is to know. I know that there are people in your life who would like you to believe that they do know everything that there is to know, particularly as pertains to your life. Some children in our midst who may feel that way about some, some people in their lives. People are experts about everything. I joke with people. I joked with some folks recently. I've learned in over 30 years of ministry that people are experts about two things. They're experts about what they do, and they're experts about what I do. I mean, we're surrounded by people who give the impression that they know everything there is to know, or certainly a great deal more than is possible for a human being to know. But we're finite, and we don't know everything. There is only one person inhabiting this universe who does know everything, and that is the infinite personal God who is really there. He's the only one who knows everything that there is to know. Among all of the things that do exist, could exist, and all of their possible relationships to one another, he is the one who knows, who knows. And then there's this second thing, that we, we are flawed people. We have been wrong. We have had to say, I'm sorry. And I think we have to keep that sort of thing in mind as we come to the Scriptures. And, and frankly, we, we have to be humbled by a sense of who we are, of who we are as we come to the Scriptures. I'm reminded of something I shared with you at the beginning of this series on Romans. I mentioned G.K. Chesterton and his response to an editorial that appeared in the Times of London. This is more than a century ago. The editorial was entitled, What is Wrong with the World? And Chesterton crafted this very technical and very elaborate and lengthy response to the question, What is Wrong with the World? 
I am. I am. Now, the Bible, I want, I want to say this, the Bible doesn't come to us with these things in order to crush us. That isn't why the scriptures speak. That isn't why God has revealed himself. He doesn't say these things to crush us, but, but in fact to bring us to terms with ourselves, to bring us face to face with the truth about ourselves. The Bible isn't so much concerned with what is out there, with, with stuff that is out there, what's wrong with the world. The Bible is much more concerned with me and particularly with what is going on inside of me, inside of me, as I think we'll see. So all of that is just a a sort of a preliminary, if you will, to saying that as we come to these, these words that we, that we just do feel so, um, so strongly, these categorical, all-inclusive words that Paul would use, I think we want to remember who we are that we are flawed and that we are finite and that there is one voice in the universe that tells the truth, always tells the truth, and speaks the truth out of a comprehensive knowledge of everything that is true. And that is God who is speaking to us in his word. And then let's, let's make this other sort of preliminary observation, just this second sort of preliminary observation. Let's be clear what it is that the Apostle Paul is dealing with here. What he wants us to understand is that we cannot find acceptance with God on the basis of anything we do or anything inside of us. That's what he's been laboring to persuade us of over the course of these chapters and verses. He says it in verse verse 20. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. See, the the great question, the ultimate question, the final question, really the, the, the most important question, the point of departure question for you and for me is simply this. How can I be accepted by God? How can I be accepted by God. That's the big question. It's not the only question, but it's the point of departure question. It's the first question. How can I know that I am accepted by God? Or to put it another way, how can I know that when I die, I will in fact go to heaven? How can I know that? Is it possible to know that? Can I know these things? And on what basis On what basis does a person find acceptance with God? At any moment in time, at any point along the way. This is an important thing, not only if you've been around these things for 30 years or 10 years or a a whole lifetime. It's important for people for whom these things are new, but it's important for all of us. How is it that I am accepted with God? That's what Paul is driving at here. And I just want to suggest to you that it's the most important question you can ask because life is short and eternity is very, very long. Very, very long, like forever. And so to come to terms with this and wrestle with it and and come to a place of real rest about it, it seems to me, 
is in a sense the preeminent question. And Paul is saying, by works of the law, no one will be justified, which is to say no one will be saved, no one will be accepted, no one will gain admission to heaven, no one earns eternal life. That's what he's been saying all along. Now, when he says no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, no one does good, no, not one. What is Paul doing here? What is, what is he saying? See, again, I just have to believe that it, it sort of crept into your thinking. It's crept into your thinking maybe two weeks ago, maybe in the course of the last two weeks. I know good people. I know people who do good things. I'm the beneficiary of a person who has done a good thing. Well, let me suggest, given, given what the apostle has said, what he's arguing for, that we cannot find acceptance on the basis of anything that we do, let's, let's wrestle a bit with this idea of what a good thing is. What what does it mean to do a good thing? And I want to suggest four things fairly quickly as we think about this. In the first place, the Bible's perspective with respect to the good that people do in the first place is a function of how they are made. It's a function of how they are made. We don't want to deny that people do good things. And people do good things in the first place because they're created in the image of a God who is good. They're created in the image of a God who is good. And that is why they do good things. If you read Genesis 1 and 2, human beings are different from every other creature God has made. Human beings are different from every other thing that God has made. Brothers and sisters, please understand. I don't know where all of you are with respect to this issue, but I want you to understand, try to persuade you that these pro-life issues, the kind of thing that CareNet cares so much about, the kind of thing that we support, are not political issues. They're not political issues. It's not an issue associated with a party or an agenda. These things are essentially theological and human issues. These issues strike right at the core of who and what we are as human beings who have been given a status and a dignity that is apart from everything else that God has made. Human beings bear the image of God. They are like God. Now, to be sure, as you read through the scriptures, you cannot escape the fact. You cannot escape the fact that we are scarred deeply scarred, severely marred people. In our, in our class this morning, one of the participants in the newcomer's class was, you know, was honest enough and courageous enough to say, I'm a struggler. I'm a struggler. And then went on to ask whether there was going to be a test at the end of this class and whether you could fail. You know, I mean, I, I said, look, that, isn't that the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of the grace of God in Jesus Christ? You walk into the classroom, the professor stands in front of the class and says, everybody gets an A. It's already been earned for you. Accept it. 
accept it. Show up for class. Do the reading. You'll learn a bunch of stuff. It'll be good for you. But you've gotten the grade. And so I said to the person in the class, look, we're all in the same boat. We're all strugglers. We struggle with different things. We struggle over different things. We're broken in different ways. But we're all strugglers and we're all broken. The image of God in us has been severely marred and fractured. But we are human beings made in his image. And because he is supremely good, good stuff will leak out of us. It just will. It's a function of our creation. It's a function of how we're made. And so even at that point, you have to say, if you're going to be honest, if you're going to look squarely in the face of the Scriptures and be honest, you've got to say, even the good that I do is something that results from the good that God did. God did a good thing when He created human beings. The sin has ravaged it and raped it, and marred it, and distorted it, but we are distorted it, but we are human beings created in the image of a God who is good. And good stuff will leak out. It'll leak out. Paul really is alluding to that in Romans chapter 2 when he talks about this, this law that is sort of worked into the fabric of what we are as human beings. So that's the first thing. People will do good things. But here's the second thing, and you've got to stick with me on this. Here's the second thing. We could be far, 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 far worse than we are. We could be far, far worse than we are. Everybody has heard the story of Noah and his boat. We have a mural, a beautiful mural in our nursery commemorating the story. But a lot of us don't really get the point of the story. I'll give you a book title and a name. You may want to read it. You may not. It's called Biblical Theology. It's by Gerhardus Voss, another of my dead white European male friends. And Voss talks about the purpose, the whole reason for the account of the flood in the scriptures and what leads up to the account of the flood, the story of Noah and his boat. And this is a sermon in itself and probably several sermons. But here is the point. Here is the point that Voss makes in his book. From the time of the first act of disobedience, from the time Adam and Eve believed the lie, dethroned God, enthroned themselves as Lord and Savior for themselves and over all of life, from the moment of their first act of disobedience, two things proliferated. Human beings and evil, human beings, and evil. And by the time you get to the days of Noah, the verdict of God, Genesis 6, 5, the verdict of God, the judgment 
of God, God who is good and who is just and who is compassionate and righteous and merciful and loving and all of those things and who imparted all of those things to his image bearers when he created them that we should be kind and compassionate and just and righteous and merciful and loving. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 6, the verdict of God, the judgment of God is this. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man upon the earth was great and that the thoughts and intents of his heart was only evil continually. Only evil continually. So pervasive was evil that one, one man, one person, was found who walked with God. And so God made a decision. And he made this decision because he had made a prior promise. And the prior promise that he made was in Genesis 3.15 when he promised that someone was going to come, a hero, a champion, a warrior would come, and when he came, he would crush the head of the serpent and he would eradicate and exterminate evil from his realm. He made that promise centuries before the time of Noah. But by the time you get to Noah's day, Noah is the only one left. And if God doesn't act and intervene, evil encompasses and engulfs and swallows up everything so that that promise no longer, no longer has the possibility of fulfillment. And so to ensure that that promise is fulfilled, God does two things. He cleanses the earth in a flood And after the flood, he makes another promise. And he gives us the bow in the heavens as a sign of the promise that he has made with the whole creation. And the gist of it is this. God promises that life will proliferate and life will be preserved. It will proliferate and it will be preserved. And God will see to it that life proliferates and is preserved. And what God is doing in that promise is promising that he will restrain evil. He will not allow things to become as bad as they otherwise would become if he did not act to restrain evil. And so from the time of the flood down to the present, Life proliferates, evil is restrained, and in the restraining of evil, God is protecting life. Now, here's the point. This is a point that Voss makes. The danger here is that we can misinterpret the restraining power of God and attribute the advance of goodness to ourselves. We can miss that what is actually happening all around us, the good that we enjoy and indeed the good that we end up doing, we can miss the fact that these goods we both do and experience because God restrains evil and not because of inherent goodness in us. And that if God did not restrain evil, 
if God did not act in power to preserve and protect life, life would be consumed in evil and darkness. In my humble opinion, this is where I'm taking a departure from the text and I'm simply acting as an interpreter of history. In my opinion, periodically, God restrains his restraint and allows us to see what life would look like if his restraint were permanently restrained. And whether it's a Ted Bundy or a Paul Pot, an individual with no power and influence over masses, but with significant power and influence over a few, or an individual with virtually limitless power with respect to masses. God pulls back the curtain, restrains his restraint so that we would have a picture of what life would be like if his restraint were permanently restrained. You can run through the litany of horrors and tragedies that litter the landscape of human history. Joseph Stalin, Adolf Hitler, you name the person, people who perpetrate unspeakable horrors against other people. But not just individuals. Occasionally, God restrains his own restraint so that we can see how an entire culture can be complicit with an individual in these unspeakable horrors. We don't want to miss from the early chapters of Genesis that God's restraining power explains why things are not as bad as they otherwise would be. So do people do good things? Yes, they do. Why do they do them? Because they're created in the image of God, God who is good. And there is residual goodness. There, there is this residue of this image-bearing nature in us. It's deeply marred, deeply scarred. But secondly, if God did not restrain evil, all of that goodness would be thoroughly consumed. And then here's the third thing. Third thing is you have to ask, what is a good thing? What is a good thing? And again, you have to go to the scriptures. You have to listen to God himself as he himself answers that question. And you can go right back to the first couple of chapters of Genesis. And again, this warrants a whole lot more discussion and conversation and unpacking and unfolding But six times in Genesis 1, God himself uses the word good. God himself uses the word good. Throughout those days of the creation, on those different occasions, he declares that something that he has done, something that he has made, something that he has formed and shaped 
and fashioned as an expression of himself, his being, his existence, and his character as the one who is supremely good. God makes the declaration, this particular thing is in keeping with who I am. This bears my likeness. This looks like me. It doesn't exhaust the totality of who and what God is, but it tells us something true and real about the God who is really there. And God declares those things good. And when he gets to the end and he creates the man and the woman, he says this, this whole thing, the man and the woman set as prince and princess over the whole of the creation to rule it, to govern it, to nurture it, to care for it, to be caretakers for me of this thing that I've created. They, together with everything that I've made, all of it is very good, very good. Very good. I've told this story. I don't know if I've told it here, but I love it. It's a great story because it involves me. When we were living in Indiana, we had uh, we lived in an old house, and there was this little flagstone sort of fence alongside our driveway, and you couldn't get to our backyard without going out the side door and around the door and up onto the yard. And my kids were little and. We didn't want them skinning their knees on the flagstone that held back the backyard. And so Barb said, why don't you build some steps? I said, I've never built some steps in my life, but I'll try and build some steps. So conceived a plan in my head. I went to the lumber yard. I talked to a carpenter. carpenter. I got materials. I got information. I sketched it out. I executed the plan. I nailed it all together. I slipped it into the little slot where it was supposed to go. I took a step back from it and I felt like God. (laughs) I looked at those steps. This is very good. What is a good thing? Right? What is a good thing? In some small way, the thing that I had conceived in my mind, the plan that I had, then securing the materials and and gathering the information needed to do this little project, the execution of it, the whole kit and caboodle, the whole thing, an expression of what I had conceived in my mind was a good thing. You must understand, when God says this is very good, he's not speaking relatively. He's not saying what some people will say after a sermon on Sunday. That was a good sermon. And what they mean was, better than some, not as good as some others, that was a good sermon. When God says, this is very good, what he is expressing is that the thing he has made is a perfect expression of his being and his character. It conforms perfectly to who and what he is as good and righteous and loving and just and compassionate. Mark chapter 10. The rich man comes to Jesus and says, good teacher. And Jesus interrupted him really before he could go any farther and said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. No one is good but God alone. 
You see, good is a very, very relative thing for us. But from the perspective of God himself, a good must conform perfectly to his being and character. And anything less than perfect conformity is not good. It is less than good. And then here's the last thing, a fourth thing. You've got to understand, in addition to these other three things, there, there is a sense in which people do good things because they're created in the image of a God who is good. People do good things because a good God is restraining evil. And so the good things that are done are attributable not to anything in us, either in terms of creation or God's redemptive purpose, but totally and completely in terms of him. And then third, he is the standard. When we ask what is good, God himself is the standard of measure. Here's the fourth thing. When the Bible judges an act, when the Bible judges an act, a good thing. It judges or assesses that thing not only in terms of the act itself, but more importantly, in terms of the motive beneath the act. The motive beneath the act. The Bible is concerned, certainly concerned, with what we do, but the Bible is much, much more concerned with why we do what we do. And when the Bible judges or measures or assesses an act, there is always what is going on beneath the surface of that thing which comes into consideration. Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 34 to 40, is asked, what is the great commandment? What is the great commandment? And the answer is, you shall love. Now, stick with me here. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commands hang all of the law and the prophets. The Bible for Jesus was the 39 books of the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying is that everything that is written in those 39 books, everything that is said, the things that are required, the things that are prohibited, the history in which those requirements and prohibitions are given, the interpretation of those, and the outworking and application of them across the centuries of Old Testament history, the whole of it from Genesis to Malachi, all of it hangs on loving God and loving your neighbor. And so the question always has to be asked. Always has to be asked. Beneath every act. Is this a good act? Is this a thing done 
out of total allegiance to love for the infinite personal God who is really there and out of a true and self-denying, self-giving love for other people. Brothers and sisters, when I come face to face and stare squarely in the face what the scriptures are telling me about what it is that defines something which is good, I want to duck. I want to run for cover. And Paul summarizes everything that he's saying in these these opening chapters with this last phrase. What he's saying, the last phrase in verse 20, through the law comes knowledge of sin. What does the law do? The law, the true law, not just external conformity to a code, but the deep heart motivations that give rise to certain actions, the totality of it, as I stare it squarely in the face, what it makes me aware of is the depth of my need. As I prayed right here, if I didn't need a Savior, I wouldn't need a Savior. And the law is showing me how deeply and desperately I need a Savior, more deeply, more desperately than I have ever imagined before. Jack Miller, who is another friend, Jack Miller used to say, you are more sinful than you want to believe. And then he would say, but you are more loved than you dare to imagine. And that is where the gospel kicks in, friends. That is where the gospel kicks in. Who is the one person who has loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength? Who is the one who has loved his neighbor as himself? Who is the one who has embraced his enemies, shed tears for his enemies, emptied his heart for his enemies? Who is the one who has fulfilled all of the law and the prophets? But the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be familiar with the word substitution. And if you're familiar with the word substitution, if you think of Jesus as a substitute, you tend to think of Jesus in his substitutionary death on the cross. But friends, what led up to that death as a substitute on the cross was a substitutionary life. A life of perfect obedience, not mere conformity to an external code, but loving the Lord his God with all of his mind and his heart and his soul and his strength and his neighbor as fully. Never once loving himself or anything else more than those two. Now, we need to go, but this is a to be continued. This is a dot, dot, dot. 
You must come back next week so that we can explicate this further in verses 21 and following so we can explore what it is that Paul tells us about how Jesus Christ has fully satisfied for all my sin, not just the superficial things, the acts and that sort of thing, but the deep heart idolatries. He's taken it all away from me. He has stripped me naked of all of my unrighteousness and in his grace and mercy has clothed me with his perfect righteousness. Pressure's off, folks. If you're a Christian today, really and truly, the pressure's off. Test passed, grade given, it belongs to you. And if you're not a Christian yet, if... if if you haven't gotten to the place where you said, I'm done, you know, Peter last week, Peter last week said he lived all of those months and years in fear because he saw his life being weighed on scales. If the good outweighed the bad, he would go to heaven. If the bad outweighed the good, he would go to hell. Here's the question. How do you know when you've done enough? How can someone who is finite and flawed possibly know when you've done enough? I want you to look at the cross and the life that leads to the cross and understand that that is the only place where enough has been done. And so to cling to the cross, to cling to Jesus means forgiveness and freedom. It means to be cleansed and it means to be clothed because of Jesus. That's what we're going to talk about in greater detail next week. But let's pray, and then we'll sing number 604, Rejoice, ye pure in heart. Let's pray together. Lord, be with your people. Be with these folks gathered here. Open their hearts. Open our eyes. Lord, we've got brokenness of all kinds in this place. We've got younger brother unrighteousness. We've got elder brother unrighteousness all of these different kinds of brokenness, would you help us, help us, help us to see really and truly that all we need is Jesus, Jesus and him alone. Press these things into our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing number 604. I think we'll sing the first and the last verses.